0: Jesse,
1: How's it going? It's good, Katie. I have a little story for you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay, so I'm in I'm in Boston now visiting my parents. The other night I was driving home from New York. I stopped to get pizza in a little place called Sturbridge, Massachusetts. I think it's called Napoli Pizza. It was very good. But a little uh, I had a little near near death experience.
0: Oh, this is exciting.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. So I okay, so I, I get these two slices of pizza, pepper and onion on them, in case you're wondering. You're probably wondering, did they just put raw pepper and onion on and put them in the oven, or did they saute the pepper and onion fresh for me? They sauteed it fresh for me, so don't worry about that. It okay. was um it was very tasty. So I I they're closing up. I'm sitting in my car, I'm eating one giant slice of pizza while staring at this family as they close up their restaurant, like I'm about to murder them. Uh then it's time to get back on the highway. I still have a slice of pizza. So I'm trying to drive on the mass turnpike while shoving this entire giant slice of pizza in my mouth, and it's very big and it's still hot. So it's like this awkward, greasy experience, and I realize this is really unsafe, and And this is where you come in, because, you know, I'm thinking about crashing the car, dying, never seeing my loved ones again, but what really got me to... Stop what I was doing and drive more carefully. Was this idea of like the police finding me with my car wrapped around a tree and a slice of pizza halfway lodged in my throat? And then think about you making fun of me on this podcast.
0: Oh man, that god, such a missed opportunity.
1: I know, I know. I'm sorry I didn't die in a car crash, but you would (sighs) have you would have torched me on the next episode.
0: I absolutely would have. And then, uh, you know, would this be ultimately good for me or bad for me if you died prematurely? I mean, on the one hand, I'd have to find a new co-host. On the other hand, I'd have to find a new co-host.
1: Yeah, honestly, there is a, a labor surplus of podcast talent. I think this tragic, slightly funny story would work in your favor, there'd be an uptick in sort of sympathy patrons, so we could we can try to orchestrate this at some point if you want.
0: The problem with this, though, is that if you die before I disavow you, is it gonna do me any good? Like, I do have this plan to someday, like, just throw you under the bus for something, I'm not sure what it's gonna be yet, to um,
1: improve my standing within, you know, uh, the good people of Brooklyn media. You need to do that while we're recording, like, mid-episode, preferably with a guest. Just be like, Jesse, Jesse, wait, 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 wait. Before we continue, I've been wanting to get this off my chest for a long time, and then just tear into to me in the episode who am i helen rosner <laughs> we're rapidly or i'm rapidly accumulating enemies lately i
0: don't want to focus too much on this because it's disgusting <laughs> it was hilarious <laughs> but a food critic for the new yorker
1: uh, tweeted, I, uh, katie she doesn't appreciate what? that you you misoccupationed her she is a what staff is writer who focuses on food
0: okay a food critic for the new yorker <laughs> tweeted the following this was last week Taking the old Twitter private for a bit because J – what's it called when you do like a – star? oh, asterisk. asterisk, J-Asterisk, S-S-E-S-Asterisk, N-G-A-L is pooping his pants and eating the poop that he pooped in his pants over the fact that I got mad at an ice cream brand a few weeks ago. And then she proceeded to tweet several more times. About how you regularly shit your pants and then eat it. I apologize to everybody listening to this right now because it's so fucking disgusting that like my stomach is turning even thinking about it. I don't know how Helen knows this about you. Um, <laughs> are you guys dating? What is going on?
1: I thought you were the only person who knew about my, what's the word? Coprophagia? Coproph- <laughs> oh, is, there's a, there's a technical term for this. Oh, dude, dude. I, I, I had to Google it. There is unfortunately a vast, Dirty corner of the internet dedicated to this fetish. Oh, fuck, barf. What did you do to piss off Helen Rosner this badly? I tweeted a link to a, spe- she got really mad at Jenny's ice cream, which is this like bougie ice cream brand from Columbus, Ohio, because they, as any brand must, they, they tweeted or Instagrammed about the election. But it wasn't radical enough for this staff writer at the New Yorker. So she tore into this PR person online. And I just basically just tweeted being like, this is sort of why journalism is becoming a laughingstock. Because like to the average person out there in America, you see what journalists spend their time and energy on. And fucking dragging an ice cream company for not having a woke enough – Bullshit election post, uh, was a pretty good example of that. Um, yeah, it's,
0: it's not, it's the ice cream com- company virtue signaled, but it didn't virtue signal in the exact way that Helen Rosner wanted them to.
1: Yes. And at one point, I believe Helen unironically said to this, this poor PR person, she was feuding with something like, you do realize that, uh, with white supremacy, the only choice is taking action against it or complicity, or haven't you seen the Instagram memes? <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of people responded. They were like, she, well, she must be being sarcastic about that. Like, she must, like, so. no one could be that insufferable. No, she's not. Because, like, that's, that's <laughs> literally one of the talking points is that if, if you're an ice cream company and you don't have the right announcement, you're a white supremacist ice cream company. Cause this makes sense. And this is the kind of stuff that will actually improve the world and help poor people. Maybe Jenny's ice cream company wants to sponsor this podcast. I got Jenny's when I was in Columbus, Ohio, reporting on the most evil story I ever wrote and Jenny's ice cream is delicious as advertised I highly recommend it
0: what's the the most evil story you've ever written was this your D piece or your trans kids piece mm-hmm. Ah, actually, yeah. great segue. What were you in Columbus doing, Jesse? Uh, trying
1: to harm marginalized people. No, who were you there to interview? Ah, I was partly there to interview Carrie Callahan, who, I did not do this on purpose. I'm an expert segwayer. Carrie Callahan is the guest we will soon be throwing to our interview with her.
0: We are going to be speaking to Carrie Callahan today about a piece recently published in Slate by Evan Urquhart. The piece is called An ex detransitioner transitioner Disavows the Anti-Trans Movement She Helps Spark. The detransitioner in this case, is not Carrie. Carrie was involved in this detransition movement um, and has a sort of a different perspective than the one featured in in Evan's piece. Um, But before we get to that, uh, Jesse, you wanted to take care of some housekeeping?
1: Yeah, a few things. Some of this was like uh, reader or listener feedback. One is, uh, so Katie, do you remember when we talked about stonks last week? Unfortunately, I do. I barely remember what a stonk is. Of course, we had some people telling us we got this or that aspect of stonks and bonds and hedge funds wrong. I guess the most substantive or like important comment was um, you know, I, I portrayed GameStop as a company that probably shouldn't exist. I still think that's true, but there is this interesting backstory where some people sort of look close at the numbers and decided that GameStop was undervalued, uh, which may well be true and you know, when you're choosing your stock to buy, the question isn't, is this business going to succeed in the long run? Is it It's is it undervalued at the moment? So we may have not given all the uh, stonk pickers or some of them enough credit. Um, and then the, the other thing was, uh, we, we talked on this podcast about this terrible article in foreign policy about puberty blockers. Uh, at last, after ranting... Who was that by? <laughs> I think it was Helen Rosner. No, it was Grace, <laughs> Grace Lavery. Um... After I, like, wrote a long newsletter about this and talked about it on this podcast and tweeted at people and eventually – You got angry on this one. I got very angry on this one. You got heated. Three or four times a year, I just get fixated on some, like, journalistic wrong and get really – just spend too much time onto it. And usually it doesn't lead to any betterment, but – in this case, thanks to the editor-in-chief, like, they actually made basically all the corrections I asked for. And it was such a shitty process and involved so much abuse from both the author and the editor, a guy named James Palmer, who seems to suck. Um, that they, I'm glad they handled it, but, like, you know, the idea that someone requesting corrections should have to deal with a stream of – two streams of invective from the writer and the editor – Uh, It's not great journalism. I was a little bit salty on Twitter, so I probably contributed to it, but um, not a pleasant experience, but a very, very happy outcome.
0: So I assume that after foreign policy corrected this piece that was riddled with errors, Grace Lavery, the author of the piece, tweeted the corrections.
1: Yeah, yeah. She uh, recorded herself doing this sort of elaborate musical number about how I'm very thoughtful on this stuff and I get a bad rap and she's so sorry. So thank you to Grace for the humility. Cool.
0: Maybe she can do the background for your uh, rap about the replication crisis.
1: <laughs> there was one other housekeeping thing. Oh, people got mad at us because on a recent patrons only episode about the Trump executive order on critical race based uh, diversity trainings, we as shorthand just said they would banned diversity trainings, which is obviously not true. I, I thought in context, it was clear what we meant. But yeah, technically, we were wrong on that. Uh, so I think we're now back to being perfect. I've corrected all the potential errors.
0: All right, great. That was stressful. Um, we are going to be talking more about diversity ethnic studies sort of this what's happening in education in the patreon episode so if people are interested in hearing more about that sign up for the patreon patreon.com slash blocked and reported and for just five dollars a month you get three extra episodes of this podcast i think it's a great deal
1: i do too i don't want to false advertise in this case we're sort of uh criticizing an article that went too far in criticizing some of that stuff. So, yeah, a lot of great stuff with the Patreon.
0: So our focus today is going to be on this Slate article by Evan Arkhart, who is a comment moderator for Slate, but also does some writing. An XD Transitioner disavows the anti-trans movement she helps spark. So – I knew that this piece was coming out before it did because Evan asked me for comment. And the reason Evan asked me for comment is because the piece focuses on a detransitioner to retransitioner named Kai Shivers. Uh, when I was working on my piece about detransitioners for The Stranger that came out in 2017, and for people who haven't read this, we'll put this in the show notes, Um, Kai was one of the people I featured in the piece. So four years later, Kai comes out as... Retransitioned, although it's sort of confusing because Kai's still going by she/her pronouns, but sort of considers herself like trans masculine butch dyke gender queer fluid kind of thing. There's a there's a lot of labels going on, Um and so. Kai basically alleges in this piece that this group of detransitioners that she was involved with for several years, and this is, uh, it's, it, it's a friend group, but it's also, there's sort of loose organiza- organizing, um, but mostly it's a, it's like a, a friend group that sort of, uh, got together with this common interest that they had, you know, detransitioning. Um, mostly women, I think there was some occasional, some, some men were involved, but it was mostly women. And so, uh, Kai was like deeply involved with this group and then has recently in the past few months disavowed the group, come out as trans again and alleges that this group, this friend group or this movement of detransitioners is akin to ex-gay therapy.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, it was just quite the allegation, especially if you've talked to a number of detransitioners, which both of us have.
0: Right. I think there were a lot of things that were incorrect or at least just like didn't speak to Carrie's experience. Um, which we're going to talk about in the in the interview section of the show. But there are just a couple things in the piece that we don't talk about with Carrie in the interview that we should just discuss really quickly. Like, okay, Jesse, would you like to talk about the statistics on detransitioning?
1: Yeah, um, and this gets a little bit nerdy, but it sort of has to because it's a complicated subject. If you write about detransition, like one of the first things you'll hear from the people who are mad at you is like, why would you write about this? It's so rare for people to detransition. This is like, this is like worrying about, you know, ex-gays or abortion regret. Um, I, I think those analogies are flawed in many ways, but the fact is we do not know what the detransition rate is in the U.S. under present circumstances. And I think both of us are most, much more concerned about this stuff when it comes to kids than adults who, you know, at a certain point, you gotta let adults do what they want. But the problem is people, including, uh, Evan Urquhart endlessly regurgitate these studies uh, purporting to show a low rate of uh, regret or detransition. You know, regret is milder because it means like, I wish I hadn't transitioned, but it doesn't necessarily mean someone has actually detransition. Um, these studies basically all suffer from one of two crippling problems. One is that they're from a much different and more gatekeepy context. So like there's this one study out of Sweden that I think looked at like three decades and came up with a low regret rate, um, that was at a time when it was much harder to transition. And like the sorts of people who wanted to transition would have to jump through a lot of hoops to do so, which I think is bad, but it also affects your final sample of people who transitioned. It suggests the people who transitioned were particularly dysphoric or particularly wealthy or particularly determined. Compare that to the situation we have in the U.S. where we have an, an increasing number of clinics who... Um, You know, even if you're pretty young, they will give you hormones almost right away. So the, the detransition or regret statistics in a context like Sweden in the 70s and 80s has nothing to do with the detransition or regret, uh, situation in the U.S. That's one major problem. The other is that, and this one I love because it's so obviously just wrong, uh, people will pull a bunch of, uh, present patients of a gender clinic at random. And see how many of them experience regret, regret, or detransition. Katie, I bet you can you can understand what's wrong with pulling present patients at a gender clinic to try to come up with a detransition rate.
0: Right, uh, people who detransition drop out of the clinics.
1: Yes, this is this is uh, something uh, something Carrie has pointed out. Intuitively, if you went to a clinic and you got a treatment and you regretted it enough to reverse it, uh, it stands to reason you might not want to go to that clinic anymore. So.
0: You know who would be an example of this? Who? Kai. Uh, when I interviewed Kai, Kai said that she was very mad at her at her clinicians who prescribed her testosterone and helped her through her transition, um, and that she, but she never told them. She didn't go back and say like, "I have regret about this."
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's absolutely something that happens. So none of this is to say that the regret or transi- uh, detransition rate is that high, which I sometimes see people claiming with no evidence, like there are massive numbers of detransitioners. We don't know. And that's partly because clinics in the U S do a horrible job of maintaining data. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's unconscionable how little data we have on young people being given what is still at least, you know, in the view of like the British courts an experimental treatment. Uh, we have no data on this. So I just, you know, Evan made this mistake. Everyone makes this mistake. If you see a study purporting to, Reveal the true detransitioner regret, right? Just take a close look at it and make sure it doesn't uh, suffer from one of those two handicaps.
0: Right, Evan says that the highest estimates of detransitioners are in the hundreds. He doesn't link to any data on this. He that might be his highest estimate, but there are no good estimates on this, it, so it's basically bullshit. It
1: there's deaf. It's there's no way it's only in the hundreds, as I pointed out on Twitter. There's seventeen thousand people just in one detransition community on Reddit. That doesn't mean they're all detransitioners, but You know, if one out of 17 of them is, that means there's at least a thousand. Also, Evan uses a really weird, Evan defines detransitioner. Not just as someone who has detransitioned, but as someone who detransitioned and then embraced this, uh, transphobic attitude that other people shouldn't be able to transition. So he's not even using detransition in the orthodox sense. I'd never seen it defined that way. Had you?
0: No, not at all. I mean, he's conflating two different things. You can be a detransitioner and still want trans people to have access to, to healthcare. Carrie is one. Um, yeah. Carrie has plenty of criticisms about, about this particular ideology and, and, Sort of everything that we talk about, but Carrie is not actually transphobic. I mean, I'm sure Evan would disagree, but
1: like, it's just she's not. No, and and again, it's just it, this is a small sample of like the sorts of detransitioners who would want to talk to a journalist for an Atlantic piece or a Stranger piece. But in my view, they tend to have a lot of empathy and to understand that people go through a lot of shit with regard to gender, uh, and and they're pretty pretty open and understanding about it in most cases. I'm sure some of them become alt-right bigots or whatever i just haven't encountered that. yeah i
0: mean kind of the main thrust of this piece is that not just that this is like an ex-gay movement that is out to harm or analogous to the ex-gay movement that is out, out to harm trans people but that what these detransitioners did when they were together was like talk about what a threat trans women were to women and like perseverate on bathrooms as you'll hear from carrie this was just not carrie's experience within this community
1: yeah. Yeah. There's this real like guilt by association attempt to paint this as some evil movement. And um I, I guess the the reason this annoys me is because I've never – I wrote this explicitly in my Atlantic article. I, I think everyone here should be on the same team. I think detransitioners transitioners and trans people should be on the same team that we should want people to have access to good comprehensive health care. And that includes not – you know, at least, uh, discouraging people who are unlikely to benefit from these interventions, many of which are serious and permanent, uh, from, from doing them. So, um, I, I just, I don't like pitting trans people against detrans people. I really think they have, uh, aligned, uh, agendas.
0: You know, uh, after this piece came out, I reread my Stranger piece because I wanted to see, um, what, what Kai said to me. And, holy shit, I gave so much space to the critics of, of detransitioners. I know. So yeah. much space. It's like I, like reading it now, I'm kind of like, not only am I shocked that it, that it caused such a shitstorm because like half of the piece is me hedging and being like, no, 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 no. Like trans people deserve to have healthcare um, in a way that I wouldn't do now uh, because it's just like, it's kind of over the top. But Jesus Christ, reading that piece, it's like every other paragraph like questions detransition. Um, I, yeah, yeah.
1: A a, a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, who I met once in person, uh, told me basically that she thought all the hedging weakened my piece. And in retrospect, I understand why we had to do it, but it it does weaken the piece. It weakens the the argument. And also it didn't matter because people just ignored. Totally. I had Within my article, basically a 750 word full newspaper column on on how hard it is for trans people to get access to healthcare uh, historically, which is true. Yeah. But it's like the amount of throat clearing you have to do to even talk about the subject.
0: I like kind of threw Radfems under the bus <laughs> in mine.
1: Did you talk about turfs? I forget.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I talked about how the Women's Liberation Front um, was working with you know Christ- the Christian Right to like uh, on some like anti-trans bills. Um, yeah, well, I, that's true. That's true. It, it was true, um, but. But I definitely like – I did not go out of my way to like coddle the feelings of radical feminists or, or gender-critical feminists by any means. Um, so rereading is just like kind of shocking that people fucking burn stacks at this paper when it's like, no, it's all there, all of it. Like everything that you, that you should want people to say about trans people is in this piece.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's been frustrating. But uh, OK. Do we have any other winding up to do or should we throw to the interview?
0: OK. One more thing. At one point during this interview, we talk about informed consent and didn't define informed consent. So will you go ahead and do that just so people know exactly what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, in in this context, I mean, informed consent in the general legal context refers to the concept of whether someone is like qualified to actually understand what they are doing with regard to medical care. Um, A couple, Planned Parenthood, uh, the the Fenway Clinic, I think, in Boston have developed these informed consent protocols uh, for trans people usually adults but some of these sort of practices are, are drifting down to teenagers even though they often legally can't really but but the whole point is you give the person who wants hormones this, this thing to read and you talk to them and you explain to them what we know what we don't know about hormones or surgery but then they are the ones who decide there's not going to be a doctor saying no i don't think you should have this and in theory this makes a lot of sense i think there's i'm, I'm basically in favor of it i think there's some edge cases one of which we'll discuss with carrie where it Uh, it can cause harm, but that's the basic idea of informed concern.
0: Okay, let's get on with the interview. Carrie Callahan is a detransitioner as well as a therapist in the Midwest and she is also the founder of the Consumer Advocate Group, the Gender Care Consumer Network, or GCCan. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so uh, we wanted to talk to you because you have lots of intimate knowledge about this group that uh, Evan Urquhart wrote about in his piece in Slate, but why don't we start out with getting some of your story. Um, You were actually the first detransitioner I'd ever heard of. So I guess I can thank you for making my life what it is oh, today. No. Thank you or blame you for it. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I heard you on a, on a, on Love and Radio um, and was and with, like telling your story. And I thought it, it, it never really occurred to me that somebody might transition and then detransition. Um, so I Almost immediately after that, I went and I pitched the detrans story to the stranger. So fuck you, Carrie.
1: <laughs> oh no! I can't believe you, I can't believe you taught Katie how to be a transphobe.
0: Oh no! <laughs> what is this? What did I sign up for? <laughs> I'm
2: very sorry for how I've
0: impacted your life, Katie. I forgive you. I forgive you. The podcast what? is going pretty well, so I guess I should thank you for that. Um, okay. Anyway, so why don't we start with your story? So tell us tell us your background. Um, when did you start identifying as trans, and what was going on in your life at the time? Okay, um, well, let's see. Um,
2: The idea first occurred to me when I was in my mid 20s. And I was having a ball of a time being a little queer girl in Chicago, going to lots of queer dance parties, biking around living my best life. Um, And trans masculine people in particular were like very, very, they were at the height of the scenes like hierarchy. Yeah. And very dateable, like, very hot. And um, it kind of gave me a new framework for thinking about how I'd always, like, felt about my body and being a female person. Because I pretty consistently rubbed up against the norms for female people. It was, like, a horrible thing in my life when my boobs came in. Um, and so that idea, I kind of stewed on... I was getting way more into like sex positive culture, like working at like a supposedly feminist sex toy store, continuing to have a ball. Um, And yeah, that idea of like, oh, I'm feeling this way because I am not actually a woman and this gender does not work for me, just made more and more sense. And, um, you know, I sort of had this idea that I might wait until my parents died to transition. Um, and then I hit 30 actually. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't, (laughs) I don't want this life. I don't want this adult woman life. I want something else. And so I transitioned.
0: I'm curious how, uh, how, how many like trans guys did you know? I'm not looking for an exact number, but I think sometimes when I tell people how many like former lesbian identified or dyke identified or whatever women have transitioned over the past 10 years just that i know i think people sometimes don't believe me because you know i'll Mm -hmm. say like i'm talking like dozens and dozens of people who have had top surgery oh yeah so like how many trans guys were trans guys was it like one out of 10 people or one out of five people like how um how big was this population
2: like a lot i guess like one out of five makes sense yeah. and this was like by the way like i transitioned in 2012 so this is a while ago at this point right 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 but yeah in the chicago like cool queer scene it was
0: we had a lot yeah it was uh it's the same way where i lived as well okay so you decided to transition and did you transition socially or medically what was that process like so
2: let's see i transitioned socially not long before starting testosterone um uh, I was doing stand-up at the time, so i i I came out to my family. They were like, "What? The like they did not see this one coming at all." And then, like, came out to my friends and comedians in the scene. Um, found myself a gender affirming therapist. This was back in 2012 when the DSM was different, so i I had to have the therapist diagnose me with gender identity disorder, which doesn't now. It's gender dysphoria is the diagnosis. And so she wrote a letter saying that I was gender queer and please give me testosterone and then I went to a hospital and got it and
0: loved it. Was it that simple you just say I'm, you know, I'm trans and they write your prescription?
2: Yeah, and just to say I I didn't when I initially got my testosterone, I didn't go to like a trans clinic. I went to just a straight up endocrinology department and it was very simple. This is a there was some hesitation from that endocrinology department in how they talked to me about, like, do you really want to do this? But, like, literally that was the entire pushback. It was the, the day that they taught me how to do my shot, I think the nurse said to me, do you really want to do this? And I was like,
0: yes. So that was the uh, the extent of the inc- informed consent was to say, are you sure? Yeah, yes. Did they Did they tell you about any potential health effects? No, but
2: just to say in that letter, my therapist – wrote that I was like fully informed. So I did not initially go through an informed consent process because my therapist had written this letter that pretty much protected the hospital from me being able to sue them because they had they had gotten assurance from a professional saying that I was fully informed, understood the risks. Gotcha, gotcha. And
0: So what was that experience like like for you? A lot of people, trans people, talk about gender dysphoria – or I'm sorry, talk about gender euphoria after starting a hormonal transition. Did you experience that? Oh, yeah.
2: No, it was such a fun time in my life. Like I was – I had a pull-up bar in my apartment. (laughs) I could do like five more pull-ups every day. It was awesome. I might
0: start doing it. That sounds great. It was
2: one of the best parts. My libido was like way up. But also I had all these like messed up ideas about men and like what the lifestyle of a young man was. So I let myself off the hook for all this stuff that felt so good to let myself off the hook for. Like my apartment was like, I don't know, empty and messy. My libido was off the hook. I was a horn dog. I was working out all the time. It was the most fun ever. I loved it. And
0: so how long did that last, uh, the period of (laughs) Um, being trans?
2: During that time, um, I did some like really impulsive, dumb things, like I moved to California, pretty much like following this like gender queer person I was dating out there, and so my life got very, very messy because I was acting impulsively and not thinking about the future <laughs> in a way that a sane person does and um when I got to California, I was super broke, and I was earning money at the time, serving in restaurants and um being, looking like a curvy woman with a beard is not good for tips. And so I kind of reached a point pretty early on in California where I was like, oh, I can't like sustain myself and I'm broke as shit. And and at that, this point, the testosterone felt so amazing that my self-conception had shifted to like full-on man. I did not think of myself as genderqueer. I was like, I am a man. My brain is that of a man. That is, this is why this testosterone feels so amazing. So then I got to California and I had to deal with the fact that I was so broke and also didn't know anyone. And I had pretty much like separated myself from all my support systems. So I went through like a year and a half after that of not being on testosterone, but like fully and truly 100% being like, I am a man. I'm the most unlucky man who has ever existed because I have the ass of a curvy lady. <laughs> and and yeah, it was a bad time. <laughs> And I got suicidal and it was a whole thing.
0: So what happened? Uh, fast forward. What happened to uh, to make you decide to detransition? So I had a hard year and then
2: I got a job at Uninformed Consent Clinic in San Francisco. And when I got that job, it was like, you know, clouds parting. Obviously, God is looking out for me. The universe wants to make my transition happen. Um, I was I was like, great. I have this job. I'll have a supportive workplace. I'll have a network of trans people to lean on. And um, now I can get my mastectomy and transition. Um, But it was really like that job answering phones at the informed consent clinic where I was like, there's this population of people has a lot more going on. And there are kind of obviously like big behaviors and symptoms that point to, you know, like people are not in a healthy place not everyone and i i really want to make that clear like for a lot of people they transition and they have good lives and it works out for them and it's awesome but there's a fair amount of people where it's like that's not happening <laughs> like like you're screaming at everyone you're suicidal like it it's kind of a bad thing in your life that you're not you didn't plan ahead in a way that protects you.
1: There's this thing that um, I think we've talked about and you sometimes see like in these communities where gender or gender identity became, become like the default explanation for everything. And what's hard is that like this often isn't a holistic mental health viewpoint. Did, Did you see this idea that like, Any suffering any client was undergoing must be related to their gender concerns, and there wasn't really room to talk about other stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There was this idea that I heard a lot of the staff at the clinic talking about that, like, people were misdiagnosed with mental health concerns that would then be cured by transition. So, like, trans guys get diagnosed, misdiagnosed as bipolar. But once they're able to access testosterone and mastectomy, then they get better. And if that was a misdiagnosis, they weren't bipolar. Uh, I just, I I think that's such a really dangerous, simplistic viewpoint, especially since something like testosterone does impact symptoms like mania. Testosterone gives you a lot more energy. So if you have a history of manic episodes, it's actually like kind of likely that on testosterone, you'll experience manic episodes. Um, and just to say another part of my critique of this particular clinic was that there, they had a couple of social workers who were, could provide therapy. The waitlist to get therapy was so much longer than the waitlist to get hormones. Like you could get hormones second visit. Right. Um, but I saw people sit on that waitlist for like way over half a year, like. It was hard to get therapy.
0: Jesse, this last year has been really tough, but despite everything that's happened in the world, I found one thing that makes life worth living.
1: Making this podcast would be? No, Jesse, my butthole sprayer. What's that? Like a a garden hose you put in your butt? Of
0: course not. I haven't used a garden hose in ages. I use the Hello Tushy 3.0 modern bidet attachment, and it's the future of butt wiping. It's easy to install, simple to use, and it will leave your bottle as sparkling clean as freshly fallen snow. I like it so much every time I use the bathroom, my wife thinks I'm taking a shower.
1: The Smart Spray automatic self-cleaning nozzle makes your toilet as easy to clean as your ass. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty.
0: If you've already got a tush on your pot, upgrade to the new 3.0 model. And if you're new to the revolution, join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush.
1: Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod and get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to
0: hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. That's hellotushy.com slash
1: barpod. I think what's what's driven me crazy about some of the more sort of like celebrity clinicians who are, who are really activists is like they'll very confidently say that if someone experiences other mental health problems and gender dysphoria – the other problems are being caused by gender dysphoria, and they'll never suggest the reverse could be possible but i I sort of i uh, you know I'm not an expert you're more you're obviously much more of an expert than me at this point, but there's there's reason to believe causation could flow in either direction, right like there's no easy answers here,
2: oh absolutely I mean like so these substances have their own um impacts on both your mood and your thinking.
1: Carrie, could could you tell the story? Uh, sorry, I don't bring it, but there's this one story you have about this about someone who who thought the world was ending.
2: Yeah. Okay. So this was a detrans guy that I met once I was detransitioned, but he actually went to the clinic I worked at um, for his care. I didn't know him when he was a patient, but um, and he in 2012 went to the inf- this informed consent clinic, and at the time. He was identified as a trans woman. He thought, like many people did in 2012, that like the world was going to end, like the Mayan calendar thing was going to happen. Like really, actually really thought it. Yeah. But this is the Bay Area. So like lots of people thought that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so what he was concerned about was like, um, you know, he he still had his testicles and he was concerned about like, he had to take both like a uh testosterone blocker and estrogen he was concerned about like where he would get his hormones after the mine calendar ended <laughs> and so he told the doctor at this clinic that like you know he was concerned about like how can he take less hormones and like if you remove your testicles then you don't have to take the testosterone blocker and so his doctor recommended this and wrote him the letter for him to get um uh the surgery to remove his testicles and then he went and got his testicles removed and then um his mental health improved um and he also stopped identifying as a trans woman and yeah and that's a bad situation to be in that's a really bad situation like getting out of a mental health episode and then that's the situation you're in like it's kind of like prime for suicide really um but luckily he didn't do that. Instead he sued the clinic. Um What
0: happened with the lawsuit? I get I get emails from D-trans and some trans people on a fairly regular basis asking me for resources about for medical malpractice suits because, for instance, they may have gone and had, you know, gotten a phalloplasty, had a penis constructed, and had horrific uh, side effects um, or complications, which is incredibly common for this surgery. And it turns out that it it can actually be really difficult to to sue for medical malpractice um, in in this particular case, depending on where you are. So this guy was
2: so i the, the way i became aware of this was that i i talked to his lawyer about how the clinic operated and part of his settlement was that he had to sign a non-disclosure agreement right um i didn't sign anything like that so what the fuck ever um, <laughs> yeah and, and um so i know i don't know how much money he got he got money um still I don't know. All things being equal, I mean, how much money is worth that
1: experience? Let me let me think about that. Actually, how much money yeah. <laughs> would I accept? Um, it
0: depends on if you want to be a soprano or not. That's true. Well, I, I think th- this is this is this is important because it speaks to it speaks to sort of the worst aspects of the of healthcare. You go complaining about something you clearly are having some sort of mental uh you know mental health crisis and a doctor's response is yeah why don't you just cut off your balls that'll fix it absolutely because i don't i mean
2: the, the end point is not i don't need anyone else to detransition in the world like that's not something i that's not a goal that's not something i'm pursuing but like I want people to have medical interventions that they have thought through very carefully that they have researched, they've researched their surgeons, they know who has less rates of complications, like, I want the effects of whatever medical interventions they participate in to be the effects they want. Um, and so that seems to me like, I, when people transition, I want them to have very successful transitions. I want them to be happy. <laughs> I want them to like feel really good about the choices they made. And then if someone like me gets a little bit down the road and is like, "Oh, this is not working out." Yeah, I also want us to have services just like, you know, a little support for like don't kill yourself. Like go back to grad school, get it done, get that 401k you want. It's all going to be okay.
1: Sounds like you really hate trans people based on what you're saying. <laughs> yeah.
0: I did read that
2: in Slate. (laughs) I, you know, honestly, especially after this last year, I've been like, maybe my problem is that I hate myself and I'm a masochist because, geez, the trouble that I have courted by like trying to be this person with what I think of as reasonable views. You have not kept your mouth yeah, shut. I have not kept my mouth shut.
1: Um, so, Carrie, just let, for, let's, let's get a little more concrete here. When you were in that sort of in-between phase where you're a server, you have facial hair, but you have like a female body. If, if Carrie, who later became a therapist, could go back and have young Carrie as a patient, what kind of questions would you want uh, her to ask her?
2: I would really want, and it would have been super useful if my therapist at the time, because I did have a therapist at the time, had sort of helped me to focus on what I did have power over, right? I would get very hung up on and have big, anxious kind of responses to things that fundamentally I don't have control over. I don't have control over whether the kitchen guys make crude jokes about my body right? I don't have control over the kitchen, guys. Um, but there are things that I have control over, right? I have control over whether I exercise in the morning, I have control over um how I treat the people in my life, I certainly have control over the thoughts that I choose to focus on when I'm in challenging situations. Um, And just to say, like, it's normal for people to Struggle with finding that sense of control when they're dealing with unfair bullshit. Like that's normal. I don't want to. So that's what would have been helpful. Just like a focus on my own autonomy and power.
0: And, and so, okay, so you're living in California. You're working at this informed consent clinic, and you start to have questions about whether whether this is actually the appropriate treatment for all of the people who are who are calling in. Or are, are, are we getting that right?
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Had you met or heard of any detransitioners at that point? Well, so I had this therapist who was
2: super affirming and was super into the idea that I was just non-binary, which, like, that's always what therapists say to detransitioners, which I think, like, just... It kind of shows that you're not hearing what the person's saying about what's not working for them in their daily life. Uh, But I... I had seen online, like some anonymous blog. And then I said to my therapist, like, I think I want to like de-transition. And so my therapist went to like her supervisor. And she was clearly looking back in this whole network of affirming therapists. And that therapist, that supervisor went to someone that she knew at like the health department. Yeah, I think not at the health department, at a hospital. And that person hooked me up with the first trans woman I ever met.
0: So you decided to detransition. Um, what was that like within your social circle? Oh, people couldn't. Well,
2: okay. So I started to detransition when I worked at that informed consent clinic. And so people couldn't really conceptualize it. Um, people were, when I said like, I'm, I'm going to try and like stop <laughs> like, um, pursuing things like testosterone or like a mastectomy to make myself happy and stuff. What people heard was like, maybe I'm a woman or like, gosh, that's tricky, right? Because these are two way different frameworks that like don't, it's really hard to translate between the frameworks. So what people heard was like, maybe I want to be feminine, right? Like, maybe I actually really like, um, I guess, you know, makeup, jewelry, that kind of thing. And so my friends who like in their defense were like in their own way trying to be supportive, like signed me up for like a monthly makeup box. (laughs) and like
0: (laughs) um, That's very problematic. Yeah, it
2: is problematic. And just as yeah, this also had to do with like, something that I think gets lost when you're outside of the queer community is that this stuff really, in a lot of ways, is totally related to who you want to date. And so I think my friends at the time were like, "Oh, you want to be femme because you actually want to date masculine people." And I'll just go there. But like, what was <laughs> my sexuality was like a huge issue for me because, like, like a lot of trans masculine people, when I took testosterone, I got way more attracted to bio dudes.
0: That is su- that it's such an interesting. Phenomenon. This is, I remember like 15 years ago thinking someone needs to do a study on trans men who become gay after they transition. Cause it's so, it's all over the place. Like, what do you think it is? Like, a- a- attraction to masculinity or just the effects of testosterone or what's going on? So, I think it's effects
2: of testosterone because what I've noticed, I'm just going to be like real, like self disclosure here. Um, I mean, I get hornier like before my period when my natural testosterone is spiking. So I think, I think there's just a thing about testosterone there that makes you hornier. Um, and it was—it's all over the trans scene. Like you know, they had like bathhouse nights for trans guys to go to the bathhouse and like hook up with bio dudes, you know. So, but it's kind of treated as the super fun thing. Like it's definitely joked about in the trans scene. I, like, was pretty, like, it threw me for a loop. It was not a fun thing in my life. That was not my life plan. Um, had you,
0: I, did you consider yourself a lesbian uh, before this, or were, had you primarily been dating women before this?
2: I had been, like, really half and half down the line. But I was, at the time I transitioned, in love with a, like, female assigned at birth gender queer person in this super dumb poly thing. So very classic. <laughs>
0: um. You cannot escape dyke drama. It doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter how much you transition. Uh, I know. Yeah. It, it holds steady.
2: <laughs> um, it's simpler now that I'm a normie, but.
0: Okay. So let's fast forward a bit. So you, uh, so this article um, by Evan Urquhart in Slate, so it focuses on a – Detransitioner, you know, a detransitioner to retransitioner, you know, named Kai Shivers, um, who was also featured in my my piece about detransitioners. Tell us about 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 that scene that you were in in meeting Kai. How did you uh, become involved in this community of detransitioners?
2: Yeah, so through my therapist, who kind of worked connections with other people in the trans healthcare scene, I met another detrans woman in real life. And that woman knew Kai through the internet.
0: So in this piece that Evan Urquhart wrote, Kai and Evan, uh, I think we, we know where Evan stands on this. He seems to agree. Kai um, accuses de- detransitioners, this detransition community that you were a part of, of being analogous to the ex-gay movement. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is
2: funny because all these detransition women date other detransition women. So, in terms of being ex gay, there's a lot of gay sex happening.
0: But in terms of, of, of uh, comparing this to, to ex- the ex gay movement, one major difference I see is that there are no institutions or even therapists who I'm aware of who are urging people or compelling people to detransition. So, that seems like a very tenuous thread to me. Um, but Kai still maintains that this is a that this is like analogous to, to ex-gay stuff. So so just talk about your experience and how it compares to to the allegations that Kai is making in this piece.
2: Yeah. So just to say like fast forward, now I am a therapist, right? Um right. and I guess when I first kind of heard about this piece, and just to say my first awareness of Evan Urquhart was. Him tweeting that he had very little compassion for straight women who oopsie mistaken themselves into thinking that they were trans. Felt like a subtweet, didn't like it, right? Um,
1: well, and I mean, that's just, I, I've seen some of this too from some of the other, certain other personalities online. Um, in some cases, you're talking about people who like had major medical interventions they regret it. To describe that uh, as an oopsie whoopsie just isn't it's really not compassionate and to me suggests coming from not the best place to do like rigorous journalism on that. Sorry, that stuff just like really annoys me. I didn't mean to jump in. Yeah.
2: It's super dismissive (laughs) and like insulting. But, um, so I, at some point I think I saw that Kai, or it might've been Evan. I I saw the accusation of ex-gay therapy before the article came out in some context.
0: Yeah. We should say so. So Kai put out a blog post on medium it's called this was um published in january it's called confessions of a former crypto turf um yeah right right and so this was my people started sending sending me this because kai was in my piece and kai mentioned mentioned that in this blog post so people mostly trans people started sending me this saying like haha fuck you have you seen this um but you can tell from you can tell from the title they're confessions of a former crypto crypto turf um you know where kai is coming from
2: i got to say the accusation of crypto turfery like is very that that's something i get really stuck on cuz i remember the conversations with kai like i remember what we were bitching about um like i was bitching about my female assigned at birth gender queer ex you know like kai was bitching about this crazy punk house she lived in like the, uh, when when I remember that time, what we were saying in private and what we were saying in public was not actually different. And I actually really, really resent the accusation, even if it's just implied that I am someone who speaks differently in private than I do in public. Like I've, I've actually worked really, really hard to say exactly the same shit in public and private in the last six years.
0: Right. And and this is one of the allegations that that Kai makes in the piece or that maybe Evan makes in the piece is that there is this public persona of detransitioners just sort of like trying to help each other. But really what this is is a group of people who actually are transphobic, deeply transphobic, who want nobody to have access to medical care, um, right. who are like, you know, quote unquote, like TERFs. Right. And like part of the problem here is that the
2: accusation of TERF has grown so much that really like a lot of people who just kind of believe what we might believe like like some saying like hey if you're gonna make these big medical decisions have really detailed plans about how you're gonna navigate your life through these that's the kind of shit that gets me called a k- turf right so is that turfery is that transphobic um no like straight up no but
0: so let's just get it on the record here. I mean, do you think that that people should have that adults at least should have access to to trans health care if they want it? Yep. And what about bathroom bills? Are you okay with uh, with trans women in women's bathrooms?
2: Yeah, I mean, in bathrooms, I think that's pretty straightforward. It serves us all to like use the bathroom that you feel comfy with. All strangers are are threatening.
1: I, I, what was so weird about? Urquhart's article is like, I, I've talked to a lot of detransitioners and you guys, well, I mean, so he, he did this move where he defined a detransitioner as someone who's basically a transphobe, which doesn't really make sense because I've never seen a detransitioner, just someone who detransitions. But I, I've talked to a lot of detransitioners and you guys all have different views on this, but I would not say it's common for a detransitioner to be against adults getting trans healthcare do you have an idea where that where that idea even came from
0: before you answer that let me read uh read a sentence from from kai's piece so people know exactly what we're talking about um he i'm sorry not kai's piece evan's piece he uh, he writes they and they means detransitioners believe gender dysphoria is common among women and disappears when they learn to love and accept <laughs> their female bodies ah
2: that is not <laughs> i have never said anything like that that is not what anyone i know thinks that is not what anyone I know
1: thinks no I, I, just, I mean the steel man version of that it, which is is that you guys, alongside like some gender affirming clinicians like Diane Ersaff, think that sometimes there's a connection between trauma and gender dysphoria, but that's not the same as saying that anyone can just learn to love their body and have their gender dysphoria go away, right I think that's pretty different, and yeah, it, just to
2: say like I think that gender dysphoria, probably like most human experiences, um, probably has a lot of different causative factors. And I guess I think that every adult's right to build an adult life that makes them happy. Like, I don't feel like I need to be assured about where someone's gender dysphoria comes from for them to have the right to pursue something like a mastectomy. It's their life. Like, the, whatever happened to them happened to them, and they got to be responsible for building the adult life they want. I do think that they should. I don't think it's going to hurt them to watch a couple of detransitioner videos and think about, like, what am I going to do if things shift for me? I think that's a boon and a positive. <laughs> Thing to take it. So
0: one of the criticisms that Evan Urkart makes in this piece, and a lot of other people have made this criticism as well, is that it's problematic with detrans when detransitioners work with conservative groups.
1: What do, I mean, what do you make of that question of sort of like what the alliances should be? Because I, because Katie and I both know from experience that if you write about, uh, you know, trans kids, for example, in a in a somewhat journalistic way, you will get a lot of like love from people on the right who probably do have generally different values from you in a lot of ways and who 15 years ago were railing about the evils of gay marriage. How do you, how do you decide who like the right allies are and what the right connections are to make? I think it's
2: tricky in a big way. And I think it requires a lot of vetting and you kind of have to, every time I find that every time that comes up, I have to it's 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 something hard to figure out every time. Sometimes it's really easy, like when the South Dakota bill happened. There was some Christian guy
0: and who is this a and is this a, uh, a bathroom bill or a?
1: No, this is a bill to ban um, uh, youth uh, pet pu- puberty blockers.
2: Right. Stuff. So when that bill started, some Christian organization took like a quote of mine and put it on their website. That's easy. I send them a letter saying uh-huh. I'm going to sue them. They take it down. <laughs> I love it. Easy, get me off your page,
0: right? So, Carrie, one thing I wanted to, to talk about, and this gets a, this gets a little bit delicate, and I should say I'm gonna I'm gonna email Kai after we after we speak and sort of fact check with him or with her. Um, I heard this from you and I heard this from other people involved in this detrans community after Evan started sending out feelers for people to interview for his piece. Um a number of people mentioned to me that Kai had also gone through sort of a nasty breakup with another detransitioner. And I think that's important because if there are if this is sort of a complicating factor in Kai's uh in Kai's disavowal of this community, it seems like something Evan should have brought up in the piece. I mentioned this to Evan. Evan told me he was aware of it and it did not make it into the piece. There could be lots of reasons for that. But, but for, with the insider knowledge that you have, and I should say that I verified this with, uh, Kai's ex, um, do you think that there was some sort of, you know, personal animosity, uh, animating Kai's decision to, to disavow this entire community? Yeah. <laughs> so, Carrie, Evan asked you for comments uh, for your piece or wanted to interview you. What was your response to that and why? Yeah, okay. So Evan
2: like the first time I became aware of Evan, it was him saying, um, I can't work up much sympathy for straight women who oopsie mistake eat their way into being trans.
0: And then I I wonder if he would have if he would have sympathy for lesbians. It's interesting that he said straight women because I don't get the sense that most detransitioners are actually like heterosexual females. Right. I'm like I'm not the total exception
2: like I know some other ones and there's lots and lots of bi detrans women. Right. Um but Yeah, like what when detrans women get together, they date each other because everyone's interested in dating women. Right. <laughs> um and at one point I made a YouTube video that's still up, kind of talking about like oh, this is another thing that Evan said. Evan was talking about at one point on Twitter about how like detransitioners are a psyop. And we were For like who? I, this has like come up again and again. Like the idea that somehow people like me are being funded by like, I guess, I don't know, the ADF, yeah,
1: like the Koch brothers. I'm not should sure. Should I tell them, should I not tell them about the uh the Corvette you rolled up in when we had that <laughs> diner meal in columbus <laughs>
2: right? yeah the condo the coke brothers How's condo. i don't know why i keep naming the coke brothers um and so i made a youtube video about like that myth like that detrans people like are very are such a small population and you only hear about us because there's some like mysterious powerful like moneyed interests pushing us forward um and that's like just not true. It is totally true that rad, there have been like radical feminist like publications or groups that are very interested in putting a trans woman like at the front of stuff. That's true. Okay. Um, but there's not like this big money thing. Like I've never, I have only lost money on this kind of thing. So, um, I made a YouTube video just saying, like, you know, the response to that has always been that detrans people get more vocal. And in fact, every time someone prominent says detrans people are a psyop, what has always occurred is a wave of detrans people becoming public. And so you should stop saying that because it works against what you want, you know. And Evan like left a comment saying that pretty much that I was like a a concern troll who like needs to take responsibility for her actions and blah 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 um right, so me and Evan had had like some pretty unpleasant interactions um and I certainly didn't regard him as someone who could be like fair or wanted to understand like the viewpoint of of someone with my experience. I really judge Slate. For thinking that Evan was an appropriate reporter to put on this, this story, like if you have a reporter who has said like really dismissive and kind of cruel things about a population, like are they the person that should write about criticisms of that population? So, I guess so. I guess so. so. Do you see trans clients now or dysphoric clients? No, I'm. So I am actually super super careful about staying away from this clinically um because well just because it would be really kind of like dangerous for me as a clinician um
1: that's so that's the exact opposite of what so many people do like they literally let their personal experiences completely guide it's so obvious the clinical advice they give to others once again, I'm disturbed by how responsible you are and how much humility you have. I don't think you're a good fit for, for Twitter.
0: <laughs> or for therapy.
1: <laughs> or for therapy.
0: Yeah. Oh Well,
2: thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I. something that's really frustrating is that I have like, especially in terms of like being consistent, like being kind of assertive about like, hey, here's where I fall on these views. And like kind of being responsible about like not getting into positions where I would unduly influence someone like I have been pretty responsible and that's been on purpose. Like I have worked hard on that and um, like there's no I haven't avoided any like shit because of it. (laughs) Um,
0: Carrie, if you were Evan's editor at this piece or uh, in charge of of dictating what people say about detransitioners, what do you want the world to actually know? Well,
2: okay, so the first thing I want people to know is that responsible care for detransitioners and responsible care for trans people are actually the same issue. So what serves both populations are like clinicians that are given adequate training, clinicians that are held accountable, um, accountability mechanisms for when medical professionals don't live up to their ethical standards, all that serves not D-trans people, not trans people, but everyone who accesses these services. So this idea that like, um, you know, the healthier D-trans people get, the more that negatively impacts trans people, wrong. Like we are all in this together, truly. Um, I know no one believes that. <laughs> I know that no one, everyone thinks that there's crypto behind that, but like, truly. We have all the same interests in common.
0: Spoken like a true crypto turf. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So that would be the number one thing.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Carrie. I'm going to put links to a bunch of the great stuff you've written uh, in the show notes. But um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad I got to meet you reporting the Atlantic story. I think this whole world just needs needs more people like you who are humble and thoughtful. So I was glad uh, glad we connected.
0: Ah, oh,
2: that's so nice. Thank you.
1: Appreciate that.
0: Carrie... Where can people find you online if you want them to? So I am
2: on Twitter at at Carrie Calls PS, And then um, I have my pieces at Medium um, under my name, Carrie Callahan. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the main places you can find me. Don't try and find me on Instagram or Facebook. Those <laughs> are my personal life things. So,
0: Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you, guys.
1: Yeah, that was, um, that was great. Carrie, Carrie is a really good person. She has like a real warmth to her. I was very glad I got to meet her when I was reporting on the, for the Atlantic story. I'll include a bunch of links to some of her, uh, really good work on this subject in the show notes. And Katie, you, you did try to, um, reach out to Kai for comment, right? And did she get back to you?
0: Yeah. So Kai said this, I'm speaking out about my past role in the D women's community because I spent years promoting ideas and practices that hurt me. And I now fear that I hurt other people as well. I also want to criticize transphobic beliefs and practices that were prevalent in my former community. I had asked Kai specifically if she wanted to say something about this, um, this rumor that I had heard, uh, that, you know, Kai's breakup with the D-transitioner, um, Corresponded, at least, with uh, Kai's disav- disavowal of the of the D-trans community. And about that, Kai said, I did used to date another D-trans woman, but I have no interest in discussing my past relationship with her.
1: Yeah, and that that's fair enough. And I think it's fair enough for us to point out that, you know, that's the kind of thing you might have wanted to at least put in a parenthetical if you're Evan Urquhart, just to let readers uh, decide for themselves.
0: Right, these things are complicated. I mean, I believe that I, I when I talked to Kai um for my piece on and uh, on, on the Stranger, um Kai struck me as a very genuine person. I I believe that b- Kai believes everything that that Kai has said. Um, but yeah, if there are some complicating narratives, you know, people are motivated to do all sorts of things for lots of reasons.
1: Yeah, I almost I almost said the Kai is the limit, but that's not that's not <laughs> even a joke. Don't. Please don't. Let's leave this in though, so people know that I was going to say it. Okay. very
0: important. Um, uh, Jesse, anything else you want to say about this piece or about detransition or should we move on?
1: No. I mean, you know, people, if they're interested in the subject, we, we've both written probably, God, tens of thousands of words on it at this point. Uh, people can decide for themselves. We are very open to criticism that actually reflects what we wrote, not sort of fantasy versions of it. But, yeah, no, I think we've um, – We've talked a lot about this.
0: All right. If you guys want to uh, complain, compliment, or curse us out, you can reach us at podcast at gmail.com.
1: Uh, we are on Reddit. I should. This should really be automatic at this point, huh? Reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Is that it? Oh, uh, we have a merch oh, store. Oh, yeah, barpod.org. Still, still live and case. The main thing is our Patreon. The main thing is our Patreon, yeah. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Singel, and remember, there is no such thing as detransitioning from being a podcaster.
0: And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you detransition after you retransition, you're technically a detrans, retrans, detransitioner.